morning. My name is Barry, one of the pastors here. Good to see you all. I want to just add my welcome to this morning to this semi-spring Sunday, right? We're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting there. Uh, but if you're here for the first time, uh, we're so glad you're here. If you're one of the founding people, we're glad you're here. Uh, just good to be with you. I am, um, I'm not worthy to stand here in front of you and say anything. Uh, it's only through the grace of God, really, that anybody can stand in front of anybody else with, with anything to share. Uh, so thank you for um, just this time. Um, Eric, thanks for the prayer. We're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of Mark. A couple different reasons. Number one, it's the shortest gospel. You know, if you need a quick win, you just zip right in there and you can knock that out. Um, but two, Mark is like one that really shows the humanity of Jesus, I think, more than the other gospels. It's the only gospel that pictures Jesus sighing. A couple times, you'll see, and he gave a great sigh. He's asked to do something. <sighs> you hear Jesus say that. So that's one of, the, one of the cool things I love about the Gospel of Mark. Um, but where we're jumping in... We are, we're jumping into Mark chapter 13, which is kind of midweek between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So just to give us a little bit of a running start, Mark 11 is when we have this, this, uh, this triumphal entry, the, the waving of the palm trees or the palm branches, the laying down of the coats, Jesus riding on his rental. Man, I love that, Eric. That's, I'm, I'm stealing that. That's a, that's a good thing. Jesus is riding on his rental. Uh, the crowd is pretty excited. But there are many things going on around this time, and much of it takes place around the temple. Jesus is kind of ducking in and out of the temple. Um, he's, this is when he drives out the money changers, and he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. This is when Jesus points out the, the widow who is giving out of her poverty, and he says, she's given way more than these who've given out of their riches. So some of the key teachings that happen at that point. This is also when uh, Jesus was confronted by like nearly every division of religious leaders. Over these couple of days, between Monday and Tuesday, the Pharisees come at him, the Sadducees come at him, the chief priests come at him, the scribes come at him, and they're all trying to trap him. They're asking them these trapping questions, and they're trying to trap him to say something either blasphemous or against the law, something that they could then go to the Roman leaders and say, see, we need to get rid of this guy. But they kept being thwarted, either through Jesus' cunning ways of answering, like answering a question with a question, or just because of the popularity of the crowd. I mean, it says that many times. They were, they were a little bit scared of the popularity of the crowd, so they would back away. But it's when Jesus is leaving the temple area for the final time that we're going to look at the passage that we're looking at today. And the text we're going to read, we are going to read the whole stinking chapter of Mark 13. Um, I can't get around any other way. Yeah, the, the, the text for our time, for our sermon, is at the very end. But I want you to hear Jesus say it. I could recap, but it's just a recap. And plus, it would probably take longer than the four minutes it'll take us to read it. So let's just read this, and we won't stand for this one, and just settle in a little bit, and, but listen to Jesus, and listen to what he says, because this is some of his most, uh, most critical teaching. So Mark, chapter 13, verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will, not be left, there, will not, there will not be left here one stone upon another 
that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us. It's like, you can tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, wow, like our week, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not long that you who speak, but the, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, parenthesis, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, not enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And here we enter the passage that we're going to be digging out. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. Unless you live in Ohio, and then you know that's just fake spring, okay? <laughs> so... You know, he, okay, Jesus didn't really say that, but, but you know he was thinking that. You know, in his omniscience. <laughs> Crazy spring. So anyway, we digress. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, nor, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time come will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I feel like it, this Mark 13 is like its own test. You read the chapter and like, are you still awake? You know, and stay awake. You know, um, I feel like every reference to the end times that's talked about in other parts of scripture, crisscrosses in this chapter. You see some Daniel in here. You see some Revelation in here. You see some Ezekiel in here. And, and this is actually something that has become a famous, what they would call discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse, just because it happens at the Mount of Olives. And it's been studied and studied and studied. But the, and Jesus actually makes, I think, by my count, 15 teaching points about events surrounding his return. You know, he teaches about events leading up to the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70, which was when that generation was still there. He teaches about the Roman persecution. He teaches about the tribulation that God's people will experience. And he's teaching about his return. But here's the thing. I don't think the point of Jesus' teaching is actually to give a blow-by-blow prophecy about his return. Because of the 15 things, the 15 points he makes about his return, there's one point that he repeats over and over and over. One central theme, stay awake. Stay awake. He says something like that seven times in just that one chapter. And a couple observations about this. You know, So when Jesus is telling us to stay awake, with regard to his return, I don't think he's asking us to be cloud watchers. You know, I don't think he's saying, I want you to spend all day looking at clouds. And by the way, if he was, we got a great spot. We got the highest spot in the city. You know, we could be, we could do that. I did that just for a little bit this morning. You know, it's a good spot to be able to do that. That's not necessarily what he's saying. He's, he's like, I want you to be involved in what's going on. Because on the other side, he says, you know, don't watch the clouds, but Live as if I'm coming back today. And it's funny, there's a, there's a little lesson even later on in the New Testament with First Thessalonians, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, both written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes First Thessalonians, he talks about Jesus' return. And he uses some of Jesus' words about his return. And it's like, it's coming, it's imminent. Second Thessalonians, he has to dial it back a little bit. He's like, okay, wait a minute. Don't quit your jobs. Y'all are being idle. You're just sitting around waiting for Jesus to return. This is not what this is about. There are things to be about and there's a way to live as if he is coming back right now. And it's like, that's the balance that Jesus is wanting us to, to achieve. When I think about balance, I was reminded of a time when um, I took a golf lesson now, I know any of you who have played golf with me, you're like, really? You took a golf lesson? Okay, yeah, I did, you know, a couple. And, and in this lesson, so the pro was trying to teach me balance. And so he says, I want you to stand just as if you're getting, just as you're addressing a ball, and I just want you to stand there. And he said, and he turned this way, and he said, now what I'm going to do, I'm going to push you either front or from the back. 
And I want you to be ready for either push, okay? Are you ready? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. He is not knocking me over. You know, I'm ready. And he gets ready and he goes, and he stops and he doesn't push me. He says, that, there's your balance. That's what balance is. It's like being ready for either direction. So when, in, a, in a big way, Jesus is saying, don't be watching the clouds, but live every day as if I'm coming back that day. Don't be asleep. But then when you look at this text, you, I start to ask myself, well, why does Jesus want us to stay awake? Because in this text, it's not really obvious. Jesus doesn't really give an explicit consequence for being found asleep when he comes back to us as believers. And this is who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples, and then he is talking to all, but he doesn't really give us an explicit consequence. Like in, uh, in Matthew 25, when he gives the parable of the 10 virgins and they run out of oil and they're waiting on the bridegroom. And so the, the 10 that run out of oil, they're like, hey, can we borrow some? We're like, no, 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 you should have prepared. Okay, we're gonna go get some. So they go to the market to get some. The bridegroom comes back. They all go in, the doors are shut. The ones who did not prepare do not get in. That's an obvious consequence. Jesus isn't so explicit here in this particular passage. So I actually ponder that. What's the big deal? I mean, okay, so we're believers and we go about our things and Jesus comes back and hey, yay, Jesus is back. Let's go, let's get this party going. Well, Jesus is like, that's not how it works. And Jesus is giving a gift of telling us this is not how it works. Because in essence, Jesus is saying, when you sleep, when you quit paying attention, nothing good happens. And then he gives us actually two pretty big clues as to the consequences that we may face if we find ourselves in a state of sleep when he comes back, or if we find ourselves not staying awake and clue number one is this. If you sleep, you will be easily misled. In fact, that's how Jesus starts this teaching. Don't be misled. He says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying I am he, and they will lead many astray. We can count on this. There are many things in our lives that will present themselves as a Christ. There are many things in our lives that will present themselves as a truth. And if we're not awake, we will entertain these Christs as truth. An example that comes to my mind, it's kind of a silly example, but um, you know, for me, every once in a while in certain stretches of life, and I don't know if it's when I'm not getting enough sleep or whatever, but I'll hit the afternoon drowsies, you know, and it'll be like hitting a wall. Anybody else get that? You know, you, you notice it a lot, especially if you're doing computer work or you're doing tedious kind of things or writing. And, and sometimes it was, it's not just an afternoon drowsy. It's like an existential exercise. You know, you hit this and you're like, oh, what am I doing? I don't, I don't know. How do I even think I can be a writer? Who would ever listen to what I'm writing? What, what's this whole thing about calling anyway? And you know, you even think, well, is Christianity just made up? Is that something's kind of made up even? I mean, it gets to that kind of point. Then about 3.30 kicks in. <laughs> I don't know if it's dopamine starts coming back in, but you just start getting back on track and you're a little bit like, what was that? I mean, anybody else? Or that's just me. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but the monks, the monks actually have a phrase for this. So I do know it's not just me. The monks have a phrase. It's called the noonday demon. 
And it's actually a known thing. It's a studied thing. It might be why certain cultures have siestas. You know, it's like, let's just sleep through this. Well, with the monks, they tried to come up with things to, to fight that because what would happen to them? I mean, monks are doing tedious things. That's the nature of what they do. And these thoughts would start to come in, these existential thoughts, and it would be temptations. And it would also be temptations to go back to their normal life, to leave the monastic life. And they would have to plow through that and they would do things within the order to try to help the monks plow through the noonday demon. There's even a diagnosis for it. It's called acedia. It's a, it's a, and it's an actual condition to help us get through that. But what happens when you're in that drowsy state, you entertain things that you would not normally entertain. And things become truth that might normally be something you would have dismissed. When our soul gets in a state of drowsy, when our soul is sleepy, we start to entertain these things that normally we would dismiss. And if we live in a state of forgetting that Jesus is coming back, apathy will set in. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke has a similar, he, he covers this Olivet Discourse as well. And in Luke, Jesus says this, our hearts will be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. That's how Jesus describes being asleep in the Gospel of Luke in this same discussion. Our minds and our hearts will begin to welcome things in us that are not Jesus. And soon, there's not room for Jesus. So this is why Jesus says emphatically, categorically, stay away. Don't let your soul get drowsy. A second big clue that Jesus gives for us about why we need to stay awake is just simply this. There is work for us to do. In uh, verse 10, Mark 13, 10, he gives, it's almost like a throwaway line. He just sticks it in there. But Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then in this little tiny parable that he gives, right at the very end of the text, it's like a mini parable. It's one verse. He says this, this is in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Picture this. Jesus has left. He has left us. But he has given us each specific work. And like Eric mentioned before earlier, he's coming back. He is coming back. And my proposal maybe to me and to us is that we let Jesus finding us doing the work that he's left us to do. Then to me, that begs the next question. Well, what's our work? What is it that we are to be doing? Well, you really don't have to dig too deep. In fact, just off the top of my head, here's a little list that came to my mind. We are to be image bearers of Jesus. We are to be agents of God's grace. We are to be ambassadors of God's love and reconciliation. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus' mercy. We're to be givers of comfort, the same comfort that we've received from God. We're to be purveyors of selflessness. We're to be the shining light of sacrificial love. We are to be users of our spiritual gifts. This might be the most direct application of what Jesus is saying in this particular little tiny parable. 
where also to be to fulfill verse 10, shares, shares of the gospel. But the thing is, we can't do this work if we're in a sleep cloud. If we're just kind of walking around in a sleepy state, we can't do this work. And what also strikes me is how these two clues go hand in hand. Don't, mean, don't be misled because you're going to fill yourself with false truth and also do the work that I have left you to do. Because one of the things that I think is also part of our work that we won't do if we're misled is to accept all the things that Jesus has given us. Because part of our existence is to accept forgiveness and to receive mercy and to embrace grace and to know redemption, to experience redemption. That's part of the work because truly we, we can't pass those things along if we haven't experienced them ourselves. And the thing is, if we, as we go through life, we will, we will collect hard circumstances. We will collect difficult situations. And as we collect these difficult situations, things begin to build up. And if we are not accessing mercy, and if we're not accessing grace, if we're sleeping our way through all that Jesus has given us, eventually we will let resentment set in, we'll let bitterness set in, we will let a bad view of God settle in, and I think we'll actually become a walking, talking heart of stone. And I should know, I have been a walking, talking heart of stone. Or maybe more accurately, I am coming out of being a walking, talking heart of stone. I want to share some testimony. And it's a personal testimony. And it's, it's actually maybe even as much of a confession as it is a testimony. And I'm, I, initially I was reluctant to share, but I do feel like in sharing this, I'm, what, I've been on a recent journey that I think is actually an incredible picture of what Jesus is saying to us about staying awake and why we are to stay awake. And in sharing this, I think maybe just a couple of disclaimers. Number one, I don't want to put myself across as a martyr and have all this self-flagellation just to make it sound more dramatic. But secondly, I don't want to put my cross, myself across in any way that I have it all together because I do not. I'm a work in progress. And this journey, I think, also explains why this passage stuck out to me and when I was first given the, the, the segments of Scripture to look at for this Sunday, I could choose anything between Mark 11 and Mark 14, from Palm Sunday to the Last Supper. And man, I'm like, there's so much great stuff. And I, I read through it and I look at it, and this passage just stared back at me like with glowing eyes. And I think it's because of this journey that I've been on. So it's all just a crazy, wonderful intersection. And truly, to use Jesus' words, I feel like I've been on a 25-year nap. And then in a particular area of my life, and I am in the middle of an awakening. And it goes something like this. Um, so over the years, I have been, I've kind of had a heightened awareness of my own selfishness. And you know, it's like, in one sense, that's no surprise. We're all inherently selfish. You know, we, that's our start point. And we could all come up with reasons about our own selfishness. But I've got several data points where I feel that 
that I've probably held on to selfishness or to more selfishness than, than my fair share. And I could even go back to when I was a kid and I could tell you a couple of stories. You'd be like, oh, wow, yeah, man, <laughs> you got it bad. Um, and, and then last year, there's several other things start coming up to kind of show the selfishness. You know, when, when you get married, oh, man, you know, it's like that's, that's when you're, you first have a mirror put up to you and you realize how selfish you can be, how selfish you have been. And then if you become a parent, it's like, okay, you take that and you multiply your marriage selfishness times 10. And you just realize how selfish you, you can be, how selfish you have been. And this began to work on me in several ways. And there are several other areas where this would manifest, where I would start to put some things together. And actually last year at Lent, a year ago last year, I decided, you know what? I'm going to give up selfishness for Lent. And I actually went to Pastor Matt and said, Matt, I'm giving up selfishness for Lent. He goes, well, tell me how that, let me know how that works out for you. You know, <laughs> I'm like, and that's a legit comment, you know, because saying, saying you're giving up selfishness is like saying, I'm going to take the color gray out of that gray paint. You know, it's the nature of what it is. It is our default setting. It's, it's in our DNA. And it's like, you know, it's, 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 it could be one, it's an interesting thing to kind of cross your mind to do. But so during Lent last year, every day, I tried to do something, something to be less selfish. And as we went through those 40 days, I began to feel some things loosen up. I began to realize that I had a tighter hold on my personal agenda than I should have as it relates to any circle of people that I would interact with, especially my family and my wife. I would realize, why am I holding so tight to that? And it goes back to this selfishness things began to loosen up. And then as I, so I kind of kept trying to apply that. And then when we hit the new year this year, 2023, I just, okay, I'd like to jump into a new study. Fresh year, let's do a fresh study. What could it be? And I'm like, let's just study selfishness. Let's just do a Bible study on selfishness. And I didn't go out and buy a Bible study on selfishness. I just kind of created my own path, pulled out my Thompson Chain Reference Bible and got some things in order and just started down a path. It's been an amazing path. To use um, an overused analogy, I truly have been like an onion being peeled layer after layer after layer. And I do feel finally at last I'm getting to the juicy part. <laughs> and some layers have, been, have come off in great in amazing ways. One of the first layers that I was just became very aware of was just simply this layer of self-denial. I realized that I had no area of my life while I was actually practicing self-denial. If I wanted chocolate, I would eat chocolate. <laughs> if I wanted a snack, I would eat a snack. And those are the more tamer examples. Um, yeah, I had moderation. I could moderate, but no area of self-denial. You know, that's one of the biggest traits and aspects of following Jesus. Another layer that I was introduced to and came and found to be true was just a layer of entitlement. And you know, it's like when you operate with a sense of entitlement, you can rationalize your, your way into anything. The sky is the limit on the type of behavior you can rationalize. If you find yourself in a hard job, or if you've had a very tiring day at work, or you're just not appreciated by your coworkers, by your family, by your spouse, or if you've experienced tragedy or loss or heartache, 
You can, you, you can find yourself using any one of these things to say, well, I'm entitled to this. And you might not consciously articulate that, but it's a feeling. It's something that you have. It's, it's in there, and it drives much of what you can do. This is a big layer to come off. And then kind of a third layer, and it really is not just a layer. It's like layers three through 10. <laughs> and this is something that's, it's, it was a, truly a big awareness of this whole selfishness thing that's just happened over these last few weeks. Because as God was working on me through January and February on this, on this subject and on this life discipline, I started hearing reports and posts and reading posts about this, this outpouring, this awakening that was occurring on the campus of Asbury University. I know I'd mentioned that a time or two during prayer time here, and we've, I've talked with some, and I know most of us are aware of that. And if not, you know, it's this, this awakening, this outpouring that happened. It was a chapel service on a, on a Tuesday that, that just never actually finished. It just kept going. It lasted for two weeks. It spread now to parts all over the world. And as I would read what was going on there, I was intrigued by it, partly because one of the things that was described so much was this air of repentance that was happening. And what was also curious to me, so I, I've, I've had some personal connection with Asbury as well. And back in the 90s, I was a youth pastor and I used to take, take a, our youth group to Ichthus, which was a music festival at Asbury. It was the music festival that started in response to Woodstock, in fact. So it had been, but it had been going every year. And in one particular year, I'd been studying about revival and reading about revival. And, and so we go to this, this Ichthus and we go to the campus and we walk around, we go into the bookstore, we picked up a book about that revival in 19. 1970 that Asbury had, had had. So that was you know, 25 years prior. So I'm reading that book while we're on campus and while we're at this music event. We go home and we start passing this book around to the youth group. Our youth group itself experienced this, this true awakening. Some, some things that happened in that youth group that, that could not really be explained. So we'd experienced a little bit then what had happened in 1970. So I've always been intrigued by this, and I know Asbury's a place where they pray for awakening revival, and then I hear things happening in February, and I, my curiosity is up. My, and then I start hearing people, friends of mine, going down there and being a part of it and going into the auditorium and experiencing it and coming back with these, these great stories. And my thought was, you know, I, I could go down there, but... Then I'm like, I would just immediately dismiss that. I was like, no, I got too much going on. There's, you know, I, I can have my own personal revival and just be a better dad and a better husband right here. But then as it moved into the second week, some things began to shift in me because I began to have, feel this intersection between this journey of selfishness that I was on and this journey of outpouring that was happening about two hours away. And the fact that it kept being described as this repentant atmosphere, I began to, to think more about that. And I'm like, yeah, you can have personal awakening anywhere, but, but God does have a thing for place. You know, he's got a thing for you know, the promised land and the tabernacle and the temple. And, and Jesus himself would go to certain places to pray to a mountainside. And sometimes it just says a certain place. And I'm like, you know, I think I need to have an intersection between this inner journey I have going on and, and where there's a concentration of repentance. I want to be there. I want to put these two things together. And so I began, I, suddenly a day opened up that would work for me to be able to go. And interestingly, it was the last day that the public was actually able to go and be a part of this. I set things up, buy myself a lawn chair, because <laughs> I don't know what to expect. And... uh 
by this time also, you hear reports that the, the line to get in the auditorium where the chapel service had been is still going, got up to about a mile and a half in length at times. There were certain days when they had to shut the roads down to Wilmore, Kentucky, because Wilmore's a town of 2,000, and it's entertaining about five to 10,000 people a day. So I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I got up early, though, Monday morning. I beat Cincinnati work traffic to, to get down there, and, and I thought if I only hit a rest stop on I-75, and that's as far as I get, that's fine. I'll just pull out my little lawn chair, have my prayer time right there. It's like, this is where it's supposed to be, but it's going to be the place. It's going to be a place. Well, things opened up truly like God parting the Red Sea, and I've even written about it. I'll write some more about it. If you want more detail, I'm glad to tell you about it, but I got there, and I was able to actually get into the auditorium, but even before I got into the auditorium, while I was waiting in line, there were opportunities to step into another chapel just to pray. And so while I was waiting in line, I'm like, I'm going to do that. So I went across the street, stepped into the chapel, and that's when I was overwhelmed with the Spirit of God. And I, I, for my own personal evidence, when, when the Spirit of God is present, I cry. Now, I don't, the Spirit of God can be present and I not cry, but when I cry, <laughs> I know it's evident. And I was overwhelmed with this sense of, of grace. I was overwhelmed with this sense of, um, of love and kindness. And a, a point of clarity came to me on this journey of selfishness, and I began to see it and name it. And I even kind of came to a point of realization of when all this really got its start. And so I went from that chapel, and I went on into the auditorium and enjoyed just this worship and and uh, was also overwhelmed with the kindness and goodness of God. Here's the other thing. I felt no condemnation. As I've got this 25-year burden being lifted, I felt no condemnation, which to me was just another sign of the Spirit of God. But the th- and, and, and what began to happen too, I, I, I was like, I don't want to leave. But I had a hard stop. I had to leave. But what enabled me to, what motivated me to leave, to put one foot in front of the other, and walk away was just simply this thought, I can't wait to be the change that just happened to me. And the thing that, the, the big point of realization about this whole journey of selfishness was this, and I, I realized that I could pinpoint possibly when it got its start. And it was years and years ago when my late wife, Dana, and I were, first, when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. And we had been married about six years and it, the diagnosis was out of the blue. weren't expecting it. wasn't an easy diagnosis. Um, so you, what do you do? You you rally around and you you circle the wagons and you become very self-absorbed and very insular and actually for good reason. I mean, you're 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 surviving. That's all that really matters, and that's all you're trying to do is you're surviving. But what I realized in this whole journey is that I circled the wagons and I never opened them back up. Because what I realized I began to do is I used that experience to stay self-absorbed. And I used that experience to stay insular in my thinking and to stay um, very focused just on, on me and what's, on, what's going on here. Now, granted, there was continued hardship, and obviously Dana passed, and, and you know, those survival instincts kick in. So there was reasons, reason at times to keep those wagons circled, but the thing is, there's also a time when you open them back up. 
And I didn't, and I let it stay an excuse. And the way it would manifest itself is this. It's like anything beyond staying at home, anything beyond staying at home and reading or watching something or anything beyond being on my bike or taking a hike or walking, anything beyond that, it would go through this matrix of of anxiety, this matrix of reluctance, of panic. Um, And eventually I might say yes to something, but it's gone through this incredible process to get to this point, to get to the point of doing anything. And funny as, you know, to interact with me through these years, you might not expect that. In fact, even as I've described this journey with people and this whole thing of selfishness, they're like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe you as, as selfish. And I'm like, well, what happened is I really, I think I'm a functioning selfaholic. Uh, you know, I figured out how to do this without really letting anybody know. And, and, and part of it is, you know, I would let myself, I, I, I would build up some enthusiasm. I would let myself get to the point of, okay, I've said yes, I've committed to this, we're going to make it good. And it would work and it would happen. It would be enthusiastic and no one, no one really know what, what, what it's gone through. But it's like this, it's just this ringer of selfishness that I would put everything through to process. And when that began to crystallize in me, it's just like, man, I've had, I've had just waves of, of repentance. And in fact, I just want to say to this room, I'm sorry. Because I know there have been times and points of interaction with people in this room, with things of this church, when it's gone through that very process. And like I say, I'm a work in progress. So I come home and, and, and I'm like, I can't wait to be the change I want to be and, and, uh, had some great just debriefing with, with Jessica and, and other folks. And funny thing happened. So that night, I had a dream. Now, here's the thing. I don't do dreams. You know? um, God's never used dreams for me. I don't even like to listen to dreams. You know, Maybe that's because of my selfishness. I don't know. So maybe that's changing. I don't know. But... Um, you know, they've never, God's used other things with me. He's used rainbows. He's used deer, many things, but not dreams. But I had a dream and it was a very vivid dream. And, and I woke up the next morning. I'm like, what? I, I don't even sometimes remember dreams. And I woke up I'm like, man, what was that all about? I'm going to tell you the dream. I think I can tell it pretty quickly. I know you're like me. I don't do, I don't like to hear dreams, but this one was interesting. Um, so the dream was this. So it was, this, it was the night, the night when we got home. Dreams this, Jessica, here's the dream. Jessica and I are driving home from, from Cincinnati. And we're getting off the exit at, at, at Middletown. We're getting off the Middletown exit, and for some reason, it's, it's a loop exit. We're actually getting back on the interstate, even though we are coming home. But there had been a bad accident. And so they, are, they were stopping traffic. And actually, there was a first responder who stopped us, who was, stopped, who was right in front of us. And because they're getting ready to bring care flight into land to take care of this accident. So they got to stop, and you see care flight coming around, this helicopter coming around. And he comes around, he turns, and then all of a sudden there's a water tower right here, and the helicopter bumps the water tower. And then all of a sudden the helicopter just kind of starts to wobble and sway, and then it loses its ability to fly, and it crashes in a mushroom cloud of, of explosion. That first responder, so I'm changing perspective now, has a stop. The first responder sees that, and it kind of turns just kind of looks at Jessica and me with this look of despair of like, that was our only hope. It's like, that was not only our hope for these people who are in this accident, that was our hope. You know, we've lost medical personnel as well. 
And so that morning, I remember this dream, and I'm like, man, what was that all about? And Zach, is that something I'm supposed to interpret? And all of a sudden, there was a connection made between the dream and my trip to Asbury. I want to show you, here's the first thing you see when you drive into Wilmore, Kentucky. And I think Kyle's got a, got a shot of this. <laughs> see that? A water tower. A freaking water tower <laughs> with a cross on it. Certain ways you drive into Wilmore, that's the first, that is the first thing I saw. That's my picture. I took that picture. I, you know, having no idea, I'm going to have this dream. I, I'm like, okay, I can't dismiss this. This has got to have some kind of interpretation. I can't dismiss this dream. And as I began to put it together, as I began to meld it with this journey, my thought is this. Okay, so over these last 25 years, I've been that helicopter, there have been times when I've been called into situations or circumstances or you name it, simple things, difficult things. And, there, and because of the selfishness that I would process everything through, I would either A, not show up, not come through, or maybe B, do it, but with reluctance or with hesitation, maybe resentment, who knows? And I've just, I was convicted by, I wonder how many situations were asking for hope or grace or whatever. And I wasn't there to deliver. I wasn't there to bring that. And, um, and I'm like, you know, there's, there's probably no other way to take that. And I think that that goes right back into what Jesus is saying to us and saying to me, stay awake. And I guess I want to ask us, is there an area of your life where you're asleep? Or is your whole life asleep? That we've sang a phrase in, in, uh, in one of our songs, at your touch of my spirit, I was awakened. Man, I was like, what? That song, that, it's like, and here we are talking about this very thing. I think God has something to say to us about that very thing. I think I would like to just invite us to do what Jesus says, just says to do, stay awake. Because without staying awake, we will be misled. We will entertain things in our heart and our minds that will eventually replace Jesus. And then when Jesus does show up, it's going to be like, a, it'll be like a stranger. Luke actually, actually describes that moment as a trap. But then also, if we don't stay awake. We don't do the work that we have been asked to do. Jesus has left us with work to do. First and foremost is just to accept what he's done for us. Is accept his redemption, accept his mercy, accept the blood that has been shed for us. But then also, what has he uniquely gifted each of us to do to help be, be the agents and of, of mercy and grace to the people around us. You know, in just a moment, we're going to be um, doing communion, sharing communion, which is something that we do every Sunday. You know, it's not lost on me, and I know I've done it, how easy it is to sleepwalk through communion. We rip, we dip, we pop it in, <laughs> we go. Um, today, let's do it as if, let's be awake. Let's be awake um, this is kind of our Holy Week communion as well. We'll 
we may be doing communion Friday on our Good Friday service, I'm, I'm sure, but this is the week that kicks it all off. Let this time of communion be a time of when you, when you dip and, and when, you, when you put that, that bread in your mouth, say to Jesus, I want to be awake. I want to, I want to do what you've asked me to do here in this particular chapter. And with regard to communion here, if you're a believer, man, you are welcome to partake. And the way we do it, we got a couple of stations. There's, there's wine and there's juice. You'll see a W or a J on the, on the chalice. Just you know, grab some bread and, and dip it in. Um, there's also a gluten-free option over here. If you are not a believer, um, it, it, probably, it really doesn't make sense to come forward and take communion. Feel free just to stay right where you are and pray. There's so much coming and going. Nobody knows who's coming and going, you know? So just, and just reflect. And if you would like to know more about what this is, see me or one of the pastors after. We'd just love to help you with that. We'd love to help you experience this awakening that can happen in all of us in, in, so much, in so many great and special ways. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your, uh, your gentle touch. Jesus, thank you for um, this gentle warning, but also this very um, poignant warning. We can't miss it. You're telling us, stay awake. Father, I pray for, for any sleepiness that's happened in, in, in this room over the years, over the weeks, whatever. God, I pray that, um, that you will use whatever events, whether it's personal conviction or whether it's some other outside event to help, help all of us have our own personal awakenings. Father, I thank you for how you've moved on my heart and... Um, I just commit to you the changes that you have laid on my heart. Father, we give you this time. I give you this special communion time that, that we can truly embrace what's been done for us. Thank you for that. Father, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen.